the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. We're talking about riots, not the Zoot Suit riot, which I was thinking about <sighs> earlier. <laughs> right? Dang it, those are the only good kind of riots. Right. Those uh, are the fun kind of riots, you know? Oh, it, speaking of a fun kind of riot, uh, you know, we've got our own uh, one-man riot, our super producer, Max Williams, with us as always. I'm Ben. I have never been to Maine, Noel. Have you been to Maine? No, but it seems like all of our friends are going to Maine lately. Um, our buddy Ahow, Andrew Howard, uh, shout out. Um, he grew up in Maine, and he was just out there. And then our buddy Sean was just in Maine. And uh, and then also our buddy, our buddy Chuck was just in Maine. And we're seeing all these Instagram pictures of plenty of just lobster rolls for days, oh, yeah. and drawn butter, and whoopie pies it just seems like a magical land of, of of delicious foods is what it seems like to me yes and we are now technically back on our show for every state horse uh this i propose will be our main episode what do you think are you down well it's definitely our main episode for the day thank you max thank you that's <laughs> very kind yeah no it's true maine you know like with an e uh, i grew up in a town uh, in georgia called augusta and i was always tickled to think there is a sister city to augusta in maine called augusta maine i'm sure there's augustas all over elsewhere but that's the one i always uh. remember from my youth my friends from maine including the infamous andrew howard who's does awesome work on our peer podcast saver check it out if you like stories about food science and culture andrew is like many uh main natives one of the people has a similar question to yours noel their version is portland oregon 
versus Portland, Maine. And that's where our story takes place today. We're going to meet a guy who's kind of a pill. His name is Mayor Neil Dow. And in a way, as we will find today, he, often called the Napoleon of Temperance, was one of the primary driving forces for what would eventually become, for a short while, a federal law banning alcohol. So we're going to figure out how Maine and how something called the Rum Riot of 1855 led to prohibition or how it was all wrapped up in this bigger story. Let's so let's let's go to let's go to New England. An excellent article by Maine History helps us get a grasp of the context here. So in like by 1820 there were um, a lot of changes in religious ideas and cultural attitudes in New England overall, not just Maine. And this led to a lot of reform because, you know, there was quite literally a puritanical society there for some time. And as the more strict views of Puritans began to hold less sway, Protestants started to think, you know what, it's totally possible for any person to reach perfection in their lives and therefore reach paradise after they pass away. So we're going to reform ourselves. We're going to reform our communities. We're going to try to be better people. We're going to fight for women's suffrage. We're going to abolish slavery. Uh, we're going to try to take care of the less fortunate members of society. And a lot of people took active roles leading these movements. So by the second decade, by 1820, and going forward, New England had a secret, despite these reforms. People were talking about it. New England especially was seen as sort of a focal point for what people believed was America's growing problem with alcohol consumption. And honestly, people drank a lot back then. Like, it, it, it might surprise you if you accidentally traveled back in time to just see how regularly people are getting soused. We know that, like, it's back to the colonial days, right? It doesn't surprise me. I mean, even before the colonial days when, like, uh, mead or whatever, like, in the medieval time was just a substitute for, like, filthy water. You know, people were basically just drinking it to to stay hydrated, but also a little counterintuitive since we know that alcohol dehydrates you. But, yeah, I mean, apparently there were even, like, drunk kids kind of, like, you know, carousing around on the streets. I mean, it was absolute bedlam. I totally understand. Uh, ben, uh, a quick question for you. The idea of temperance, right? Temperance doesn't necessarily mean abstinence. Temperance just means like measured use, right? Uh, temperance, you can use things in a temperate way and like a moderate way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but the uh, temperance movement had a couple of um, different positions sort of on a spectrum. So they would be dedicated to promoting moderate use of alcohol. Like, hey, have a few drinks at dinner or at a party, uh, but not constantly every day. More often than not, though, the temperance movement advocated for teetotaling, for yeah. complete abstinence from uh, liquor. 
bunch of t totalitarians they were. But again, I get it. I mean, it was a problem. You know, people were losing their jobs. People were just absolutely kind of like wasting away. And then even like homelessness became, I mean, it really was kind of a uh, a new, uh, real, real, real problem that was sweeping the country. And Children this was, were running around drunk. I know, it's wild. Uh, and, and this was a reaction to that. So while maybe at the end of the day, there was some overreach happening. I completely understand. And it was associated, like you said, Ben, with stuff like abolitionism and um, women's suffrage. It was just the idea to make the world, the country, uh, first and foremost, a better place. So we started to see groups like the Temperance Watchmen of Durham, Maine, popping up. That was one of the first that was formed around 1848. And the idea there was just to, you know, kind of live, lead by example, become the sort of moral imperative that others would look to, um, to model their lives after. And they would kind of be able to wrest back, you know, control of, of the uh, social conditions um, that had kind of gone off the rails by encouraging moderation of drinking. So we weren't quite at uh, teetotalitarianism yet, um, which is a term that I just made up. So by the mid-century in Portland, Maine, we've got Neil Dow. Uh, that is the um, mayor who we, we spoke of earlier. He began to adopt a much more aggressive tactic in this battle against alcoholism. He decided he was going to take this to the state house. Uh, and instead of changing people's attitudes by, you know, encouraging temperance and, and, and leading by example, he was going to do that thing that we now know never really worked super well, uh, which was to change the laws and tell people what they could not do. So rather than telling people to maybe drink a little less, he branded all drinkers as rum dealers. That was a, uh, a term of abuse that was hurled around at the time. Yeah, this is the thing. Dow went especially hard in the paint here. He quickly left the moderates behind, including people like the governor at the time, William King, who loved a good glass of wine. He founded the first statewide temperance association. Again, this is from the mainhistory.org website. Let's learn a little bit more about Neil. All right, so Neil is born to a Quaker family a pretty well-to-do Quaker family in Portland, Maine, in March, March 20th of 1804. And after he gets out of high school, he enters his dad's tanning business. It's very common at this time in history for people to join a family business. At the time, Portland is a booming trade center, and it's known in particular for being involved in the rum trade with the West Indies. And the, um, the economic system was something like this. The people of Portland or the economy of Portland would trade its lumber and the products of its fisheries for rum and molasses. Molasses got turned into rum in these distilleries in Maine. Portland, Maine alone by itself had seven different distilleries. And so you know how you can walk through parts of New York City and you'll see a Starbucks literally every block? That's the situation with booze joints in Portland, Maine in the 1800s. You couldn't not find a saloon or a tavern on every street. And if you didn't somehow run into a saloon or a tavern, you know, a bar basically, then you could just pop into a grocery store because they would also sell you liquor. And this upset Dow because he saw 
he saw this clear correlation between overconsumption of alcohol and all sorts of problems in his community. He hated alcohol since day one. This was first day stuff to him. He also hated slavery because he believed that rum and slavery fed off of one another. He had a good point because rum, the slavery system, and the sugar economy fueled the triangle trade between the Caribbean, the U.S., and the African continent. Back then, in general, Americans drank, get this, three times as much as they do today, which just wow. boggles the mind. How do people get anything done? I can't imagine. Again, like we said, like even back to medieval times when people were just drinking all day, every day, like as their beverage. I think that you must just develop higher tolerances and also just blast your liver. People died a lot younger in these days too. Um, so Ben, just, just to clarify real quick. So this triangle trade, you know, because that was, that was what facilitated the slave trade as well. And because of the routes, correct? That's where the slaves would be taken, you know, to the U.S. on those routes. Is that right? Yeah, you can also see this referred to as the colonial molasses trade, this part of it. What would happen is slave traders based in New England would bring rum to the African continent and they would use that to purchase enslaved people. And then those people who had been enslaved were brought to the West Indies and they were sold to sugarcane plantations where they were forced to work harvesting sugar that made molasses that went to New England into those distilleries, got turned into rum, and then sold back on the African continent, rinse and repeat in got a it. diabolical way. That makes sense. So again, like his heart's in the right place. He's seeing a real problem um, that that figures into, you know, those kind of like top tier problems that we were addressing that even the women's temperance movements were addressing. Um, so this is a social justice issue at heart or at least where his heart is. <laughs> Maybe he goes a little too hard in the paint, like you said, Ben. Um, but he becomes known as the Napoleon of temperance. Um, at the age of 23, by the way, he founded the Maine Temperance Society, and he was absolutely instrumental in getting the 28-gallon law passed in 1846, according to an author named Kate McCarty, who writes that this law prohibited the sales of alcohol in less than 28-gallon quantities to Everyone except doctors. Uh, and that meant that the super wealthy could afford to buy alcohol, but the average folks couldn't. So it was, you know, obviously a bit of a classist kind of law, but I would imagine that it definitely, you know, was effective to some degree in the same way as, you know, we maybe had folks have folks in bigger cities selling like loose cigarettes, which is totally right. illegal. Um, you had shops called tippling shops that sold single drinks. That's where the average people would would be getting their booze, but they were always, you know, targeted and shut down. And these were essentially like the earlier forms of speakeasies. While booze wasn't completely illegal, you couldn't sell it in such small amounts. And he kind of cut his political teeth on policies like this uh, and became associated, you know, with the temperance movement and what would ultimately become prohibition. Yeah, yeah. He I want to share this anecdote because I think it's I, I think it gives us a glimpse into the workings of the man's mind. Writing for the Irish Times, uh, we found this pretty fascinating and a little bit disturbing instance of just how unmoderate Dow was. Nathan Mannion 
in the article, The Irish Who Instigated the Portland Rum Riots, notes that Dow, Neil Dow, hated alcohol so much that when he was promoted to fire chief once upon a time, he let the local liquor store burn to the ground instead of putting out the fire. He just watched it blaze. This guy was not playing around. And his stance found support. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. He was elected the mayor of Portland, Maine in 1851. And as soon as he became mayor, he went to the state legislature of Maine and persuaded them to pass a prohibition law. This means that Maine becomes the very first state in the union to ban alcohol. Uh, like you said, there was a bit of class and classism wrapped up in the way this law was applied. There were exceptions. You could buy or sell alcohol for medical, mechanical, or manufacturing purposes. And if you wanted to do any of that, you had to have a special license that exempted you from the, you know, the hoi polloi who would just be using alcohol recreationally. So Dow was 
downright draconian about this. He went to the people, uh, the good alcohol business folk of Portland, and he said, look, you got two weeks to sell your alcohol out of this state before we start cracking down. Other states caught on. Massachusetts says, hey, this is a pretty good idea. Let's model our own reforms after what they're doing in Maine. So in a way, as Maine history notes, the state seemed to be living up to its motto, which I did not know. I don't know if you guys knew this motto. Dirigio, I lead. What is Dirigio? Is that like Excelsior? Like uh, this is one of these weird words that only gets thrown around by eccentric billionaires. Yeah, it's Latin. It means I direct or I guide. Oh, Excelsior is Latin too, isn't it? Yes, Excelsior. It's Latin for hire. So this is where the guy earns his nickname, the Napoleon of Temperance, and he starts promoting his approach, his no excuses, hard-nosed approach to prohibition, both across the country and across the world. But here's the thing. If you've listened to our earlier episodes on prohibition stories, or if you've checked out some of the stuff on stuff they don't want you to know about the shenanigans the U.S. government and organized crime got up to during alcohol prohibition, you know that making laws like this don't really work. And that's not a moral point. It's just that the main law, like the later national prohibition law, didn't stop everyone from drinking. People in Maine found ways around it. In Smithsonian, Kat Eschner specifically cites a article in the Portland Press Herald by Kelly Bouchard. And Bouchard goes deep into how people got around this law. Some folks would just brew booze at home. That wasn't uh, uncommon at all. And they would sell it to their neighbors out of their kitchens. Farmers if they had a surplus of fruit, would make hard cider or wine. And when people were given fines for violating the law, they just treated it as a business expense. You know, what's that old saying? I ran into it again recently, and I thought about how true it is. If the punishment for a crime is a fine, is that then not a law that only applies to the poor? Exactly. No, it 100% is. Um, and I understand it's, it's a tricky thing to discuss, isn't it, Ben? Because the most visible folks that are experiencing negative outcomes because of alcohol consumption are the poor. You know, they're the ones that are in the street. They're the ones that are getting into fights. They're the ones that are potentially, you know, causing mayhem, you know, um, in, in the most visible ways. But, you know, the folks that are drinking behind closed doors, perhaps, and abusing their spouses, maybe, or just uh, maybe even their children, they're going to be the ones that are able to, you know, keep it indoors and then be a little more shielded from that kind of thing. It makes sense on the one hand from like a very kind of primitive way of, of addressing a problem like this. It's something that we still see today. Uh, folks that are more wealthy and, and more powerful are able to kind of keep doing whatever they want um, for the most part behind closed doors, even if there's a law that, that's supposedly supposed to affect everyone the same. Yeah, exactly. It's always laws for thee, but not for me, as people say. And it's weird because some of the first non-Yankee fortunes came from brewing, right? Or from the hundreds and hundreds of kitchen bars that appeared after about 1851. And the growing middle class still enjoyed an occasional drink, but 
because the growing middle class was largely a Yankee demographic, they started to look at what they viewed as excessive drinking to be a hallmark of foreigners or a problem with the youths, the youths, or a uh, problem with lower class people. Dow, we've painted him in a somewhat sympathetic if driven light. He's against the dangers of widespread alcohol abuse. Check. People can agree with that. He's against the horrors and atrocities of slavery. Check. I think we can all agree with that. He was also, however, opposed to immigration, especially immigration from Ireland. And Portland, Maine in particular, had a pretty sizable population of Irish immigrants. They could tell that he had beef. Uh, they, they were definitely feeling the crunch because this law disproportionately impact this part of the population. Like you said, he had that two-week grace period, right? After the legislation goes through. Mm -hmm. And during that two-week grace period, all the bars, the public houses, saloons, taverns, distilleries, you name it, they get shut down. And the only things left, the only outfits left selling booze are a small number of illegal things called grog shops. Love it. I don't know how I feel about that word. Grog oh, I like shops. it. Well, yeah, grog. It's funny. Grog, if I'm not mistaken, is specifically refers to a concoction made with rum. Um, a grog is is like there there are uh, tiki drinks with grog in the name, which often consist of rum and other um, alcohols, you know, mixed with some sort of fruit juice and all of that. Um, but yeah, it's true. And this these were the places where working class and immigrant. Um, communities would hang out and it was you know these were like more localized in their neighborhoods um and so it essentially was by targeting these after hours grog shops uh they were targeting those communities as well and not to mention that around 11 percent of the entire city's population were irish immigrants and that's around twenty-one thousand people uh and they were you know fleeing their homeland because of the uh the famine um the great famine so they were essentially, you know, coming for a better life, um, and they lived in an area called Munjoy Hill, which was a little bit worse for wear and felt like a slum, kind of, you know, especially to the police and lawmakers. And this was like ground zero for searching for all of this contraband liquor. But again, it was like a de facto kind of targeting of immigrants. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And, you know, life is tough for a lot of these folks who have immigrated around 21,000 people at the time. A lot of these folks had survived the Great Famine and made it out and made it to the U.S. I, I'm just saying, like, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't fall into the, um, into the error of stereotyping these folks as like a bunch of raging drunkards, you know, which Dow definitely did. They weren't. They were, they were people making a living like anyone else. I, I, want, I want to double back really quick. I, I, you're absolutely right, but I just want to make clarify what I said earlier. I wasn't implying that like all poor people were carousing, drunken in the streets. I was just saying that like they were maybe the most visible. Uh, the ones that were problematic would likely be from poorer populations. Oh, sure, and yeah, would, yeah. would therefore maybe be the most visible and therefore be seen as the root of the problem. And the richies that could get drunk behind closed doors right. would not be as visible and would not maybe be lumped in with that for other reasons too. But that was what I was getting at. Right. I wasn't what what yeah. I'm pointing out is that Dow was racist. 
A million percent. Of phobic. I'm just That's what I'm yes. pointing out. So I completely agree. He, with yeah, so he, I completely uh, agree. He, in fact, this, uh, uh, the sidebar is getting to, he, in fact, later went to Ireland himself and he said this. A glorious country Ireland is, but the people are reduced to a condition of the most extreme poverty, largely by whiskey. So at the very least, he is oversimplifying a very complicated situation. This was consistent, though. He wasn't switching sides. The, this was almost identical to public uh, statements he had made in Portland while he was campaigning. And he, he had this, he popularized this trope this idea of a liquor-swilling foreigner. Again, as reported by Irish Times, it was a stereotype. Um, I don't know, you know, it reminded me of that 1980s stereotype of the so-called welfare queen that didn't really hold up to scrutiny. And his, his stereotype completely ignored the fact that more than 3 million Irish people 20 years ago, had subscribed to a different abstinence society, one called Friar Matthews. And many of those folks later moved to the U.S. and were fighting for the temperance movement in the United States. But they didn't agree with Dow necessarily because they said, look, if you want people to abstain from drinking or abstain from hard liquor, you should help them do it of their own free will instead of coercing them. And so these folks and Many other folks, honestly, were turned off by what they saw as Dow's lack of, uh, what would you call it, compassion, empathy, uh, or his hardline approach. They thought he was alienating more people when he could be helping them. A absolutely. And I mean, it's very clear from what you just said, Ben, that these were, this, this was an unfair stereotype and that they're, you know, that just like any other group of people, it contains multitudes. And three million of those multitudes were folks that wanted to support abstinence, uh, or at the very least, temperance, right? But it's so important to, to make that distinction. We, we've seen time and time again in things like the war on drugs and what ultimately became the huge national embarrassment that was abstinence. It just doesn't work when you tell people what they can't do. It's much better to give people the tools they need to, to do for themselves and to fix themselves and to lead better lives rather than to completely ban something because A, people that want to do what they want to do are going to figure out a way to do it. And if you make it more difficult to do, that's when you start seeing the criminal element sneak in. That's like when you start seeing things like with prohibition, what the government like poisoned a bunch of alcohol with like methanol, right. I'm, I think. And, and then you start seeing people getting killed and getting out of hand. It's like what we see today with, you know, tainted drugs on the street. It just doesn't work. And it also leads to simmering resentment for those that uh, seek to kind of impose these type of draconian measures on folks. Uh, and that's when we get to Dow's reelection campaign in 1852. He lost <laughs> because, you know, Irish people can vote, <laughs> too. And he blamed it on them. Uh, supposedly illegal voting by there Irish immigrants. Yeah. Does, oh, sounds familiar. Does sound Tale a little as old familiar. as American time. It sure does sound real familiar. Not even from that distant in history, right? Like uh, maybe like uh, less than a year ago. And this is all uh, documented uh, very uh, meticulously in a 1961 book by Frank Byrne called Prophet of Prohibition, Neil Dow and His Crusade. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we promised you a riot, folks. And, and here we go. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Dow does get reelected. He loses that first reelection campaign in 52. But in 55, he is elected again. He's only in office for about two months before the Portland rum riot occurs. The rum riot goes down on June 2nd, 1855. It involves a lot of Irish and German residents of Portland. They felt unfairly targeted by the prohibition law, and they learned that Dow had stored $1,600 worth of alcohol in a vault under City Hall. And I, I got to say this, I listened to a, uh, a lot of NPR. I love it. And ever since I was a kid, there's always this report, you know, when they do the numbers and uh, they talk about how the Dow is up or down. Totally. And when I, was, when I was really young, I, for some reason was convinced that it was like the spiritual idea, like the Tao. <laughs> the spirit so, of the, yeah, like, 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 like the Tao of, of Pooh or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really thought it was, I thought it was that for a long time. And again, I was very young and I, I thought, well, that's so nice that they have a spiritual focus. Uh, I was wrong. They're talking about the Dow Jones stock market. Uh, but I, I just bring that up because it's it's knocking around in my head. And this is also where this Dow, this version of the Dow starts to go down. So they're not happy about this. These folks who feel like they've been targeted, there's a small fortune worth of booze just under lock and key in City Hall. Do you understand why 
Because in my mind, you know, like the most uh, um, inflammatory version of the story is that Dow was actually a total hypocrite and was a secret lush. That would have been amazing. I do not think that is what was the case. But why store all this booze? Because, I mean, I know there was a law that allowed for the yeah. uh, storage of booze for medicinal purposes, but even that seems really vague. And uh, mechanical alcohol. Yes. Yeah, so he had earlier in spring of the same year, 55, he had authorized the city of Portland to purchase this $1,600 worth of alcohol purely or officially, we would say, for distribution to doctors and pharmacies. And he did this unilaterally, not through a committee. Mm. Which means that technically speaking, he broke the laws that he himself supported. I and see. This, this was the real hypocrisy to the Irish population. Uh, at the time in Maine, this is, this is pretty interesting. I, I don't know what you guys think about this, but at the time in Maine, any three random citizens could Voltron up or, you know, just team up, uh, uh, make a super group, go to a judge and ask for a search warrant if they believed any crime had been committed. Huh. So if you were listening and uh, you, dear ridiculous historian, are hanging out with Max Knoll and yours truly uh, in Maine in this time, then we wouldn't even need all four of us. We could just get together and say, hey, <laughs> hey, hey. Uh, do our Scooby-Doo kids impression. Like, hey, I think there's a crime going on. Let's go find a judge. That's nuts that you could do that. I Yeah. I can't believe people didn't abuse that power. It's almost like that thing with the pottery, you know, with the with the Greeks or the ostracism. Romans rather ostracism. Like it didn't take, uh, it didn't take a huge majority to to make that happen. Um, yeah. and, and it was, as we know, as we found out in that episode, abused uh, from time to time. So uh, this escalated, and on June the second, they uh, the Irish representatives asked for and received a search warrant from that local judge. And then that very same day, a small crowd started to gather outside of City Hall. Um, the men showed the warrant at the door and were uh, had to be allowed in to search the premises. Uh, and the police initially refused them, which was uh, you know that's not how the law works. It's a weird law though, isn't it? Ben? This all seems very very un orthodox. Yeah, it is very unorthodox. It's a good way to put it. And Dow's violation, you know, was not not the end of the world. It was a technical violation, but if you were someone who wanted to buy liquor in this place and you couldn't, you can understand how this seems like a smoking gun of hypocrisy. There's even uh, an excerpt from <laughs> A local newspaper of the time. It's got great snark. We found this uh, through the work of A.J. Herman, who wrote a paper called Demon Rum and Devious Politics. The paper called upon the citizens of Portland by virtue of Neil Dow's law to steal Neil Dow's liquors and pour them into the street. And people were like, yeah, he's breaking his own law. Forget this guy. Mm. <laughs> and and uh, as they were as they were gathered, like you said, the crowd started to grow and grow and grow, mostly Irish people, but not all Irish people. And then they started throwing rocks at the building, at City Hall. And the report from the Eastern Argus said that occasionally during the evening, stones and brick bats were thrown against the door of the liquor store, parentheses, the storage area in City Hall, <laughs> breaking the glass and sashes and otherwise injuring the door. And Dow calls out the militia and he doesn't 
play around at all. He doesn't try to talk to people. He just orders them to shoot into the crowd. This is quickly going sideways. There is a 22-year-old sailor named John Robbins from Deer Isle who breaks a hole in the door of the liquor vault, unlocks it, and is instantly killed in a volley of gunfire. The crowd is dispersing because, you know, people, generally speaking, don't want to die. But the militia continues to fire, and so seven more people are injured. On a tragic historic footnote, a poor young John Robbins was set to get married the very next day and never made it. Ah, sad. And this is ultimately what led to the Dow going down. Yep, way down. He became kind of a pariah. I mean, he was definitely seen as the villain in this because he ordered the militia to shoot into the crowd, and he clearly had no remorse for what he had done uh, and for the part that he played in escalating this riot rather than, you know, uh, maybe, you know, using some rhetoric to kind of chill things out a little bit. But this guy seemed like he was a creature of extremes. Uh, so this very much feels within his character. And he looked at all, like, like he said, throughout his political career, he seemed to look at these folks immigrants largely maybe it was through the lens of of considering them degenerate drunks but at the end of the day it was just a reason uh for him to kind of other people you know and uh, mm-hmm. he at the end of the day was like you said just a racist and a xenophobe he was ultimately acquitted of the charges that he'd obtained this alcohol illegally but surprise surprise he lost re-election by quite a wide margin yeah Don't shoot your constituents. Exactly. Don't do that. It's a bad, bad look. Um, And uh, surprise, surprise, again, about a year later, Maine repealed these draconian prohibition laws. Then in 1861, at the age of 57, Dow enlisted as a colonel in the 13th Maine Infantry to fight in the Civil War. Um, he there kind of maybe got his dream came true. He was wounded, captured, and then became a general. Um, so he uh, repaired his reputation a bit. It did repair his reputation to some degree. Uh, it was sort of a, you know, even though the rum riots are obviously a big deal locally, it wasn't nearly as big a story as, you know, be, becoming a war hero injured in the line of duty. He did return to to Maine, and he never held public office again, though he did try to run for governor and for the presidency of the U.S. on the prohibition ticket. And he continued to push for prohibition for the rest of his life until he died at the ripe old age of 93 uh, in 1897. I've got a little bit of political advice for all our aspiring officials, fellow ridiculous historians. Generally speaking, if you want to be successful in winning over hearts and minds, it's good to stand for something. It's good to run for something instead of against something. And running on one issue uh, doesn't always cut the mustard or uh, dilute the rum. That's what grog was, by the way. Originally, it was rum diluted with water. Naval drink. Weird story. Yeah, Maybe exactly. Maybe we'll do an episode on it. But exactly, but, I'm used to hearing it in uh, tiki drink uh, names. Grog. Sure. You're right. It absolutely was or in like uh, mm-hmm. Pirates of the Caribbean type Total references. Thing. So, so this is this is the thing because he is only running on an oppositional platform, and because you know he authorized militia to fire on civilians, he never attains office again, as he said. 
But he did leave a legacy because Maine's prohibition experiment was a harbinger, was foreshadowing of what would later play out across the United States. <laughs> I almost said United Nations. Keep it in, Max. Uh, it will play out uh, after the 18th Amendment is added to the U.S. Constitution. And tons and tons and tons of people will go on to try to find ways to get around the restrictions, uh, ways to dodge the law. We see a renaissance, a golden age for organized crime. People make fortunes off bootlegging. Uh, one of my favorite examples, I think, was the, um, the grape juice concentrate that was sold to people. You guys probably mm. saw this. It was sold to people and it had instructions on it that essentially said, do not do the following things, because if you do, it will create wine. Okay. Which is great. Which is basically instructions for how to, you know, yeah. of course everyone's going to do the thing that you Here's told a not tent. to do. Don't unfold it and do the following things because you might accidentally sleep in it. Yeah, right? Exactly. You know what I mean? So exactly. That's, it's like if you get pills that say, taking these while drinking alcohol may cause drowsiness. Uh, please do not operate a motor vehicle. That's how you know those are the fun ones. <laughs> that's what people tell me. That's what people tell me. But... Uh, this this story is often forgotten, I think, when people look at the larger problems uh, caused by prohibition, whether or not you yourself enjoy a tipple now and then. Uh, the fact is that there were a lot of serious, serious issues with the way the concept of prohibition was rolled out. But in the mind of its supporters, they were combating likewise incredibly serious problems in society. If you want to learn more about the temperance policy, the concept, then you can head up to Norway, Maine, where temperance is alive and well at a little two-room place called the Weary Club. W-E-A-R-Y, like, I grew weary. Yes, I grow weary of this episode. Uh, no, it's a good one. It was a very good episode. And I think we definitely have a trip to Maine due. I don't think either one of us have been to Maine. Matt, Max, have you been to Maine? I have not. It is on my list. I hear it's like the most beautiful state ever. So yeah, that yeah. is on my like, list. Like I said, our buddy Sean was posting pictures from like a botanical garden in Maine that had all these beautiful statues, like yeah. statues of like mm -hmm. elves and stuff and like really cool looking place. And uh, again, the lot you had me at the lobster rolls. So definitely have that on my agenda. I'm probably going to head up to Maine. I'll, I don't know if I can ship lobster rolls, but I'll, uh, I'll definitely send you guys some pictures. Actually, I have a friend I've connected with uh, in Rhode Island over the pandemic who is a lobster fisherman. So Ooh, uh, a nice. lobsterman. A lobsterman, yes, nice. and crab and, and a couple other things. So, uh, dude, if you're listening, hook us up. It's tough to get good seafood here in Atlanta. Any advice, greatly appreciated and uh, greatly welcomed. While we're thanking people, thank you, as always, so much for tuning in, folks. Thanks to the one and only Mr. Max Williams, who very soon is bound for some adventures of his own. Hope you uh. have a kick-ass time, Max. Uh, and also, thanks to your brother, 
Alex, who composed this slapping track that's probably playing now. Is it playing now? Peek behind the curtain. We can't hear when it starts. It's definitely playing in our hearts. It's, uh, it's definitely playing yeah. also on this track right now. Okay, good to know. Good to know. <laughs> Christopher Hasiotis here in spirit. Jonathan Strickland, the Quister, definitely do back for a, for a pop in uh, soon. Uh, a little foreshadowing there. And you, Ben, my friend. I hope we can one day uh, adventure to Maine together. Yes. In fact, we'll be on a bit of an adventure this weekend, Noel, because I am officiating a wedding and you are probably going to be at that wedding. I am definitely going to be there. And I've heard a little bit about uh, this officiation in question. And I'm very excited to to hang with you in my... Very good things. No, I'm very excited to hang with you and some of our best friends uh, in my hometown of Augusta that I mentioned at the top of the show. Not Augusta, Maine, Augusta, Georgia. And we want to hear from you as always. Uh, hit us up on Ridiculous Historians on Facebook. You can also follow us as not just the show, but as individuals. I am at Ben Bullen on Instagram, B O W L I N. And uh, what about you, Noel? Oh, you can find me exclusively on Instagram where I am at How Now Noel Brown. Max, are you still on Instagram as uh, Braves Hater? No, I am actually not on Instagram, but if anyone does want to follow me, uh, retweet a lot of stuff about the Braves podcast and Star Trek, you can follow me at, at ATL underscore Max Williams. It's official. on Twitter. Oh, yes, and that is on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Got it. All right. Duly noted. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? we are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.